Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show. Let's get to it. We're talking about something that it might be tough for many, but it's important, and that is working through our traumatic experiences to heal our hearts, minds, and bodies. My first guest today is Dr. Peter Levine. We're talking today about post-traumatic stress with somebody that I hold in the greatest esteem, and that is Dr. Peter A. Levine, who holds doctorates in both biophysics and psychology. He is the developer of Somatic Experiencing, a naturalistic and neurobiological approach to healing trauma. Welcome, Dr. Levine. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining me. Sure, gladly. Let's get right into it here and talk a little bit about symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Yeah. I mean, the symptoms are really diverse. I mean, sometimes it's a symptom can be that a certain smell makes the person recoil, the smell of smoke, of cigarettes or of alcohol, or just the person who looks a little bit like somebody that may have been traumatizing to them many, many, many years ago. And sometimes it can be seem like it's relatively small. And it also can happen quite a time after the event so that the person doesn't really even associate the feelings that they're getting, the, the anxiety, the depression, their sleeplessness, fearfulness, just seems to come out of the blue. I, I'll give you one example, and this is with a serious trauma. These kind of things can add up over time, can accumulate over time. But this is a woman. She worked in the garment factory in New York. And she was in her 80s. And one day there was a fire in a waste paper basket. And somebody put it out right away so there was no problem. However, this woman could no longer return to work and then could no longer go outside of her neighborhood and then barely even outside of her house. So that doesn't make sense, right? It's a, it's a, a fire, it's in a waste basket. I'm, I got speaking about fire, of course, but this was again, something that shouldn't have been, it wasn't a problem to anyone else. Well, it turns out that this woman and the, the area she lived in in New York was a Jewish area. Well, she had suffered in the Holocaust. She was a victim uh. of the Holocaust. And the smell of the paper rekindled the smell of burning flesh, Oof. you know, 70 years ago, 60 years ago. Wow. So again, if you don't realize, okay, this is a woman, that she's Jewish, she's living in this one neighborhood that's Jewish, she won't go outside of that neighborhood after this event, you start to put the picture together. 
which of course we can. So that's a really big trauma. And again, that appears to be long forgotten. And that's also a term that's often used that the trauma is long forgotten, but it's not forgotten. It's forgotten in conscious memory, but not in emotional memory and not in what are called procedural memories or body memories. I actually talk quite a bit about that in my book, In a Trauma and Memory, Brain and Body and, and a Search for the Living Past, how the past lives within us and how just the seemingly smallest trigger can start the whole process again. And actually, I think it's sometimes it's as common that people don't experience symptoms until some weeks or months afterwards. You know, I think of a number of people, for example, that were in uh, car accidents. And these could be relatively small accidents where they're sitting in the car and then somebody hits them from behind, they're whiplashed, and they feel okay, you know, because there's adrenaline is released, so they're feeling, you know, buzzed up. But then the next day, start getting pain. Then some weeks later, they start to have anxiety about driving. Now, obviously that you, you think, of, of course that connects, but again, why did it take so much time? And one possible candidate for this is a phenomenon called limbic kindling. Mm. And you know, the limbic is, system is a part of the brain, particularly the amygdala that is related to trauma, that and areas in the brainstem. So there's this phenomenon called kindling, where if you stimulate a nerve cell in the amygdala, you give it an electrical stimulation, did it, did, and then you get firing of the nerve cells, did it, did, did, and then you do this a week later or even more, you stimulate those nerves again. And this time, did, 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 and then the nerve cell fires, did, 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 did. Mm-hmm. And then stops. Then maybe on the fourth or fifth week, you do it and the nerve continues to fire and doesn't turn itself off. So something like that may be one candidate at least in why trauma often takes time to affect. And my exposure to trauma was really in 1969 when I was asked to see this woman who had all kinds of physical and anxiety and panic anxiety and agoraphobia. You know, again, there was no reason why this would be. It happened sort of out of the blue. She was in graduate school, so there was pressure there, of course. Anyhow, I started to work with her, and it turns out that her anxiety was due to when she was four years old, she was held down by doctors and nurses and given ether for a tonsillectomy. And her body had wanted to run and escape for 20 years. And in the session, she was able to experience herself running and escaping. Actually, this is an image that came to me that mobilized her action was that of a tiger crouching and getting ready to chase her. And then I saw this image of this tiger and I said, Nancy, there's a tiger chasing you. Run, climb those rocks and escape. And she did. She could imagine doing that. And then when she was on top of the rocks, she looked down and she saw the tiger. And then the tiger changed to seeing herself at the age of four being held down and having the ether mask forced on her on her face. Indeed, that image of the tiger was the motivation for my first book. And again, this was a time there was only one other book on trauma, if you can believe that. 
Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery, and then my book, Waking the Tiger, Healing Trauma. So again, this is something that was really unknown. And then when it became known, it became known more from the kind of trauma that soldiers were experiencing in Vietnam and in wars before that, of course, as well. And it wasn't applied to traumas that people experience in being molested, in being robbed, in being in car accidents and so forth. It really took some time for that to broaden out in, in scope. And even now, I think there's almost a protective aversion to not even think about trauma, you know, out of mind, out of sight instead. <laughs> that is not the way it works. And again, it doesn't work with conscious memory. It works with these emotional memories and these body memories. Yeah. In terms of the somatic experiencing, which you described with Nancy's story, talk a little bit about how your work evolved to what you lecture and teach today. The short answer is my work is always evolving. And I think I would give it up if it weren't evolving. And that's one of the things that you, some of it's pretty horrible. You really see the dark side of human nature. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but you also, I am so moved and opened by people's transformations, how they move from these traumatic states into aliveness, vibrancy, wholeness, connection. And to me, somebody asked me, well, is, is trauma common? And I said, well, yeah, trauma is a fact of life, but the good news is it doesn't have to be a life sentence. And indeed, when people transform their traumas, they come to very different states of oneness, of compassion. These kind of nonlinear, non-dual side effects. Nancy, after the session with her, she reported, of course, the memory that came up. But she also reported that she felt like she was being held in warm tingling waves. Mm. So again, this is the other side of trauma. So she had the release from the awareness of the trauma going back and, and recognizing what had happened and seeing herself above it and triumphant over it. She had the release. That's of it. right. And the triumph is a key here. Yes. Trauma happens when we are unable to triumph, when we're unable to meet a difficult situation effectively. And that gets stored, again, in our implicit memory system, our emotional and procedural or body memories. And again, you, we may have no conscious memory. It's we're, we're really, we're cut off from the memory. We're only affected by things that are happening to us in the present. And those things are keeping us, ironically, out of being in the here and now. I think in some ways, trauma could be considered to be a disorder of not being able to be in the here and now. Ah. And, and in a way, with Nancy and with thousands of other people, literally, that I've worked with and probably tens or hundreds of thousands that you know all my students have worked with, what happens in working in somatic experiencing in that way, it creates new experiences in the body that contradict those of fear, of terror, of helplessness. This is, again, important. It's not about reliving the memory. With Nancy, it was about her having a new, you mentioned the word, I think, empowered 
experience. Triumphant. Triumphant, Triumphant experience. Yes. Exactly. And triumph is, again, I see with the people who have these invisible wounds that I've worked with, again, from the military, from special forces, to students, to people who, who work in stores. It just goes on endlessly. And always there's something that was missing at the time that then gets reinstated, so to speak. You know, there's also an, an interesting area of inquiry. It's called reconsolidation theory. Reconsolidation? Yes. So when we, for example, when we have a memory, for it to be, go from short-term to long-term memory, uh, certain molecules are involved that affect the synaptic transmission and, and so forth. And it's interesting that at, when a memory is brought up, but again, not overwhelming experience, just in somatic experience, we talk about touching into the traumatic experience, not going into it headlong, touching into it. And when we do that, those similar molecules then allow a new memory to be formed. So when we then are triumphant, where before we were overwhelmed and, and to helplessness, we now have a new memory, as it were. And for Nancy, she didn't have that memory of being held down as a child. She had a memory of empowered escape. Yeah. Which is post-traumatic growth, right? PTG? I'm not sure about that. I think there's some relationship because I've worked with a number of people who have had post-traumatic growth in many ways. Their life has opened up. Their relationships have changed. Their decisions on what they do to support themselves, you know, in making a living change. But they still have symptoms of PTSD. So I think they're, they're not completely separate, but they're definitely not the same. Yeah. There's some transformation or transcendence that occurs in this healing. Yeah. I, I would say transformation because transcendence is, it's sort of like that it's as though it never happened, but transformation, it did happen, but I'm not the helpless victim anymore. Yeah. Well, yeah, we can't erase the traumas. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show. Let's return to the conversation. We're talking with Dr. Peter Levine today about working through traumatic experiences to heal our hearts minds, and bodies. I wanted to just bring up something for our listeners that might be an interesting point, that many of us lead lives that are absent of the kinds of horrific traumas that you mentioned, war, violence, sexual natural assault, disasters. natural disasters, right? Fires, floods, etc. Mm -hmm. But there are other traumas that have equal impact on us because the brain does not recognize the enormity right? Of it being big or small. It's how the brain is registering the event. That's exactly right. It's about not threat per se, but perceived threat. Yeah. And that's really a big difference. So for a small baby being left alone or being very cold without somebody helping to warm it, 
that is very likely to be overwhelming. You know, this recent debacle of taking kids away from their parents and putting them oh. in these basically cages. Horrible. Oh, my God. I mean, that really is a horrendous assault against humanity. These kids are going to be scarred for life because they don't have a caregiver to be with them, to help them regulate this distress and to let them know that it's safe again. So with the infants and babies, things that would certainly not be overwhelming for an adult could certainly be overwhelming for a child. And one of the things that I discovered in working with over the years, again, in working with babies and children, is that when they develop also the skills, when there's somebody there to support them, when there's been a trauma, not only do they move through it, but they become stronger kids as they grow up. You know, again, I, I hope it's okay to mention the book. This is one book that I, I Are really you feel- kidding? I want you to mention all your books. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Okay. So we have Waking the Tiger, then in an unspoken voice. And then this other one is called Trauma-Proofing Your Kids, A Parent's Guide for Instilling Confidence, Joy, and Resilience. If we can teach the parents skills that they can then use with their children, they will grow up to have, I believe, more joy, more confidence, and more resilience. And remember, trauma, injury is part of the human condition. It has always been part of the human condition. Back way before there was the name trauma, way before there was the name psychology, when we were living in caves and warmed by fires, we still were being pursued by predator animals and we had injuries. And I think this is what early shamanism was probably about, of how to help people move through these states. And I think shamans do things that somewhat similar actually to what happens in somatic experiencing sessions. Again, this is this non-duality, non-linearity that people have these experiences which have a mystical quality to them. Again, this is the human condition is one of injury, of threat, of confronting fear and of being overwhelmed And I've always looked for tools to do this. Now, again, somatic experiencing is not the same as a shamanic approach because in shamanism, what often happens, usually happens, there are two main causes of disease in the shamanic traditions. One is called fright paralysis in Portuguese and Spanish, it's sustus and soul loss. And the other one is being hexed by somebody else. So let's just look at the first one. (laughs) So what the shaman does, when there's been a shock, when there's been a soul loss, the shaman goes out into the other world and finds the part of the person that left, the part of the soul that became dislocated and left. And they bring the soul back into the person, often using chanting, singing, drumming, and so forth. In somatic experiencing, we help the client find that dislocated parts, the part of the soul that got fractured, and to help them bring those dissociated parts. So we talk about dissociation, not soul loss, but I think they're rather similar. So we are supporting the individual, the client, to bring those parts back. Which gives power back as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it it does make sense. I want to ask you a question about the nature of stress and trauma. However, that the post-traumatic stress response is a normal response to abnormal amounts of stress. 
Yes, definitely. And I would add to an accumulation yes, yes. of stress. You know, and again, a lot of times people don't have symptoms of PTSD or don't develop them later or maybe even not at all, but we are affected. I can think of an example, which was a bigger trauma. This is a, a person I work with in a, in a training in Denmark, in Copenhagen. And the symptom she was presenting with is that she and her husband were redoing their uh, bathroom. And the husband ordered a, a shower head that was a very large round shower head. And she was furious at him. And she knew enough to realize this didn't make sense. So she came in as a demonstration person. And I worked with the visual image of the shower head. Well, it turned out that when she was, I think, about two years old, the mother was boiling water on the stove and the child climbed up on a chair and pulled the pot towards her, which scalded her and, and took her to the emergency room. The visual of the pot coming towards her was very similar to the shower head. Oh, wow. You never would think, you'd think well, it just doesn't make sense. Why is this person so angry about the type of a shower head that the husband got in the bathroom? It is fascinating. And I like how you referred to it as not the big T trauma, but it's all relative, right, to our experience. You know, another thing, I was just working with a woman the other day and she definitely had a, you know, an abuse uh, at the age of 13. There's no question about that. And she said something which many people have said to me. She said, I don't have a real trauma. I, I'm not like the people, you know. Who are <laughs> yes, I've heard this me. before. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like I don't have a right to have trauma symptoms because people are traumatized much more. And, you know, often I'll say, you know, that's absolutely true. There are many people, many, many people who have been more traumatized than you are. But here's the way I look at it, if you're interested. And I said, you know, my experience, again, in working with thousands of people, is that they're transformed through that work. And they also affect those around them and those in their community and, those, and their children. And in a way, they affect every person they come into contact with in a positive way. And to me, that's the name of the game. How can the individual actually help to change the society? And, you know, uh, there's a museum I love in Phoenix. It's called the Musical Instrument Museum. And when you walk in, there's a saying. It says, music is the universal language of the world. Huh. And I totally agree with that. But there are two. And I think the other thing that unites us is trauma. I agree. We all know what happiness looks like. We all know what our joy looks like. But we're really united by the dark stuff. Yes, indeed. And how we meet that. And that's, I think that's the attraction and the, the beauty of this work. Indeed. That's really well said, to give birth to themselves, to give rebirth. Yes. And when we talk about trauma in terms of symptoms, you know, for our listeners who may think, well, that's not me. What the two of you are describing is not me. <laughs> what are our common symptoms that you can share? The common symptoms are just like weird things. And we just think, well, that's just the way I am. You know, I just don't like certain smells or I don't like to be in crowds. 
But when you check it out, it's not like you don't like being in crowds. You're actually frightened by being in crowds. So, again, it could be something like the tablecloth or the uh, showerhead. We don't make the connection because these are not conscious memories. They're unconscious memories. You can't just decide to remember them. It's not like a laundry list or a shopping list. You can't recall them at will. But they recall you at their back in <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, what about self-medication? I don't. I think we touched upon it, but people uh, will, will self-medicate. Yes. And this is now, you know, I, I think about the opioid crisis. Yes. And the people who are not only overdosing, but the paramedics bring them back. And then a day or two later, they're back on the street again, overdosing. This is due to numbing of deep emotional wounding, of deep emotional pain, and of a life, a present life, which doesn't have meaning. Just detoxing the person is not going to take care of the problem. You know, that for the past 13 years, I think, I've been consulting with the Meadows, which is a really good uh, addiction center and also dual diagnosis. And... The part that I brought kind of in, and they were also doing it in terms of developmental trauma, but really looking at how the addiction is not going to fundamentally change until the reasons for using the addiction. And it could be different. It could be numbing. It could be dissociating. It could also be creating a good feeling quote, a good feeling that the person is unable to experience on their own. So they're using, say, stimulant drugs like cocaine, amphetamines, or even ecstasy to get these positive feelings. But if they're unable to really do that on their own, then they'll be a slave to the addiction, whatever it is, if it's a substance or if it's a process like an addiction to uh, sex or gambling. To money or gambling, you know. And they also, these also do release chemicals that are very similar to the chemicals that are released when these substances are using, are being used. What about addiction to emotions? So somebody who's a rager, mm-hmm. oh, yes. you know. Exactly. The rage releases catecholamines, which are the adrenaline-like substance, and the rage can also release the opioids, the endorphins, the endogenous. That's really a vicious cocktail, the narcotic plus the stimulant together. I think they used to call them speedballs. And most addicted people are addicted to those that have, you know, elements of both. And also rage and anger gives us a sense that we're right and that we are... The victim, you know, rage is used very, very, very adeptly by politicians, not mentioning any names. Well, yeah. People to say, you know, you're being treated unfairly. These people are coming to take over your job and your country, your your wives and your country. (laughs) And you should be enraged. You should be enraged. Well, it's effective because, again, with rage, we not only release chemicals, but we feel false sense of power where in our life we feel powerless we don't have a really good job that we can be proud of that we bring home money and and ourselves to our wives and our children our families again you can any strong emotion can be an, an addiction even grief can have that element hey, Not, yes talk a little bit more about that when somebody has complicated grief or prolonged yes. grief they're not able to move past I think that very often 
it's better to feel grief than to not feel. Yeah. To feel numb. So grief, again, gives us this, at least this hint or this connection with aliveness. Yeah. When we then are able to feel our own aliveness. And again, you know, very often we cut off our aliveness because, because we cut off our grief. But again, the other can be also true, that grief is a way to keep us from feeling some of our deeper feelings. And sometimes when I've worked with clients, grief that is expressed on a lone tear streaming down from their eyes to their cheeks, sometimes that can be the deepest grief than going into an emotional catharsis over and over. Yeah. I'm holding that image that you just described. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see that post-traumatic stress is on the rise? That as history or time marches forward, that we see more of it? Oh, I think there's no question that it's on the rise. And part of it is accumulative Something we didn't talk about is how stress uh, is passed on from generation to generation through one mechanism is the epigenome. And I think what happens is because this affects the fetal development, that the fetus is stressed. So then the, the infant is born with more stress, is bringing into the world more stress. And then I think then that is more likely to be traumatized and more likely to pass that onto the next generation. So I think things amplify. You know, I'm always kind of amazed when I come back into the United States, when I'm in different countries, even in countries where I've been working, where there's a war zone, the aftermath of a war zone, or a lot of violence, like in Brazil. And I come back and I, I land in the airport and I look around and I think, oh my God, so many frightened, dissociated people. And I wonder why that is, because we don't have the same level of threat and danger. But I think part of it is people here realize that if they're sick or if they lose their job, you know, they can be out on the street. There's no safety net, really, the way there is in other countries, even in so-called third world countries. Yeah. So again, I think that level of fear, and that, again, that's used in the body politic to get people to say, look, you have a right to feel fear because and I'm the only, I, I can protect you for that. I'm the only one really who can protect you from that. By the way, if they go to um, Somatic Experience or my name on YouTube, I, I apparently there are a bunch of stuff. There's a documentary of work I did with a Marine named Ray called Ray's Story. And then you can go to the, to the Somatic Experiencing website which is uh, simply traumahealing.org, www.traumahealing.org. And there's also information there and also find a practitioner and also to see where trainings are occurring. I think right now we're giving trainings in 42 different countries. So um, I might, I might so have to come train with you. I would advise that. I would Seriously. recommend it to myself. <laughs> I think it would be really wonderful. And to find you on Twitter at Peter Levine, PhD, and on Facebook, Peter Levine, PhD. Dr. Levine, thank you for your generosity of spirit and spending time with me. I really am grateful. Gladly. We'll be right back. That's a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, 
and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to today's show. I urge you to download and share this episode because we're talking about how we heal our hearts, minds, and bodies from traumatic experiences. And my next guest has a very interesting perspective through his own life experiences. Welcome, Jackson McKenzie. My next guest today is Jackson McKenzie. He is the co-founder of PsychopathFree.com, an online support community that reaches millions of abuse survivors each month. Driven by personal experience, his mission is to spread awareness and give survivors a safe place to validate their experiences. We're talking about his new book, Whole Again, Healing Your Heart and Rediscovering Your True Self after toxic relationships and emotional abuse. Jackson, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. Oh, it is a pleasure because I know that at certain points in my life, I have found myself in bed with characters like these. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think you'll find that anyone either knows someone or has been in one of these relationships themselves. And when we talk about relational PTSD, what do we mean by relational PTSD. So after a breakup, it's really normal uh, to need some time to feel better. You might even feel physically pained by the experience. But after a toxic relationship, especially one where there may have been manipulation or gaslighting, those kinds of things can actually leave really long lasting effects on the target of that relationship where they kind of become tensed up and their bodies may numb out the pain or become very agitated and worried about that happening again in the future which can make it really difficult to uh, experience relationships moving forward. Please explain what gaslighting is for those of us out there that might not know until you explain it and then they go, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure we, we all definitely <laughs> recognize it pretty quickly. But the, the word basically means it's when someone is telling you that your version of reality is incorrect and it can leave you feeling really unsettled because... Uh, you may, let's say you have an argument with someone and they do something hurtful and then the next day you want to talk about it and they may deny that it ever happened or just completely rewrite reality. And especially when it comes to narcissists and sociopaths, a lot of times they'll accuse you of doing what they did. And it can become really stressful because you're trying to prove yourself and you're trying to, you know, recall your version of reality and you keep getting told that it's false and it really plants a seed of doubt inside your mind. Let's differentiate between narcissist and sociopath. So I am not a therapist or a professional, but I'm happy to share um, the experiences that I've had working with other people on the website and chatting with just thousands of people who have been through these experiences. I think a narcissist you're going to find uh, kind of needs this constant admiration and attention. They tend to enter that really quick honeymoon phase, get really excited about someone because you're going to give them all that attention. But then it's sort of like a Peter Pan thing. As soon as everything's not perfect anymore, they 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 want to find something better, something different. Um, and with sociopaths, there is that very similar idolization period followed by that devaluing and discarding. But a lot of people who have been in those relationships describe more of a, I don't know how to, it's an intentional aspect to the behavior, uh, kind of an enjoyment out of using the puppet strings and making someone struggle or seem unhappy or doubt themselves or feel crazy. 
So those would be kind of the differentiators I'd notice. So the sociopath consciously manipulates and plays with kind of, they're very, they lack empathy, right? They don't really. Yeah, absolutely. No empathy, no remorse. And there's kind of this uh, constant underlying boredom that almost any sociopath would describe, which maybe there's some temporary relief in playing with other people or their emotions. But there's that you know need to feel superior and above others. So when you trick someone or lie to them and get away with it, it's sort of it's that thrill that they experience. There are fewer sociopaths than there are narcissists, right? Narcissists, there seem to be more of them walking the earth. I believe that's correct. Yeah, there's um, been some really great meta studies out there about the prevalence of the different disorders. And I'm sure a lot of them are very comorbid. And when we talk about narcissism, it makes me think of the kind of character that is the bowl with the whole. There's not enough love, enough adoration, enough of anything that will make that person feel content. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. Nothing that you would ever do would be enough for them. And Strangely enough, that actually it's not strange at all. It tends to attract people who don't believe that they're ever enough. It could also be a very strong, very independent person too. But a really common belief, especially once the abuse has started, is that nothing I ever do is good enough and that I have to prove myself, I have to try harder, and I basically need to put in extra effort in order to be loved. And here's where the relational part comes. Enough about these characters because they want us to talk about them. Let's <laughs> let's talk about our relationship with ourselves and what attracts us or gets us into these kinds of relationships and the healing that needs to occur if we are to find healthy relationship and connection. Sure, absolutely. You know, I always try to avoid the any sort of victim blaming, like saying, you know, you it takes two to tango, or that's why this happened. Because like the fault of abuse always lies on the abuser, and I don't think that will ever change. It's that's someone's responsibility for harming someone else. But where partners can really come in and start to protect themselves is building up that self respect and the boundaries between you and other people. I think at least for myself, and I don't know if this is true for everyone, but a lot of the people that I've talked with kind of describe this. Sometimes it's described as codependency, perfectionism, people pleasing, this idea that you always need to be doing more to make other people happy, that you're responsible for the emotions of others. A lot of times these types of people will feel really uncomfortable around uh, conflict and can usually sense it um, stirring and will do anything they can to avoid that conflict from happening. Um, and those are the kinds of things when we're constantly on the lookout for um, other people and their emotions, we don't always tend to take care of ourselves and our own needs. And I, what I think I hear you saying also is that that our our mood, our performance, our behavior will be predicated on that of the other. Absolutely. Yeah. And that um, we there's morph. that dependency there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the protective self, like as human beings, what we need out of our relationships and the crazy things that we do to, to protect yeah. ourselves from being harmed? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think that it's it's really normal that throughout life we experience um, different hardships and um, sometimes traumas that really leave long-lasting effects. And unless we get to a point where we slow down at some point in our lives, which I think usually our lives lead to that point, of realizing we need to introspect or we need to do something differently, old wounds can really sit under the surface. Um, those can be like wounds of rejection or inadequacy or worthlessness that really 
they're these heavy, uh, difficult feelings. And in order to avoid feeling them because they're very painful, we have these distractions. And you see it all the time with alcoholism and addiction. There's that distraction from um, emotional pain. But there's a lot of other manifestations of this. Uh, that includes like perfectionism, um, codependency, and taking care of other people to get that self-worth and to feel needed. And a lot of times it can even go into more of that um, traumatic type of response, which is getting uh, really isolated, feelings of depression and anxiety. And again, the, the whole goal is to keep ourselves away from that wounded place. But in doing so, uh, we're accidentally holding on to it as a part of our identity. Yes, I agree with you. And I, and I see this a lot in clients and in my own past experiences. And, and the other behaviors, um, protective behaviors can be not just numbing with substances, but, you know, shopping, gambling, video gaming, right? Uh, you know, isolating, yeah. you know, re removing oneself from the social circle and even self-harm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the the more it goes on, the, the more extreme it can become. When we talk about deconstructing the protective self, explain how one would do that. So I think one of the biggest parts that I found really helpful is learning mindfulness, which is it's basically the ability to become comfortable with discomfort and not trying to change it or judge it or transform it. Just sitting there with the body and the mind and noticing what's going on, sort of like a very friendly observer, not, you know, when you hear voices like, oh my God, why am I thinking that I must be crazy or bad? Or why do I do this? Again, you don't even need to judge those voices. It's all about just like noticing, oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, there's that voice again. And I think the more we do that, the more the body and mind start to reveal the truth behind all of this to us. And this is a practice that really takes time, I think, to cultivate. And it's not always about meditation. Some people find it hard to sit, right? Mm -hmm. So these mindfulness practices can take on very different forms. You have to find the right one for you. Exactly. Yeah. There's so many different kinds. There's like loving kindness. There's guided meditations. I like to do them, um, the mindfulness stuff when I walk. That's I like to walk with music and that's really my time. So I think you're absolutely right. Everybody is different, but the idea is just building that relationship with yourself is so important. And as the relationship with the self builds and we learn to love ourselves, and I know that sounds like so like woo-woo, airy-fairy, dramatic, <laughs> like gushy, but it's really about, you know, possessing self-respect, self-compassion, self-kindness, self-forgiveness, self-mercy, you know, Exactly. And taking on like a lighthearted approach to ourselves and even to others. And, you know, it's not falling in love with, I'm so wonderful. I'm so amazing. It's really just, I think, letting go of the things that tell us we're bad. And in my experience, the love from there just kind of comes rushing back in on its own. And just to go back to something that you said earlier in our conversation about when we find ourselves, the, or the perception that we're in a victim place. Mm -hmm. I think that um, we choose these kinds of partners sort of unwittingly, but it's also a, because our picker in some aspect may be flawed and we don't know how to pick healthy people. So through that cultivation of self-awareness and better boundary setting, we are then able to attract healthier partners into our lives. Yeah, this is one of the hardest pills for me to swallow um, for, <laughs> for a long time. And 
It's so it's so true, though. Um, I absolutely believe that someone could just end up in one of these relationships out of um, bad luck. But like when I looked back, I, I found that, and I think a lot of times when a narcissist or a sociopath or someone with um, borderline personality disorder instantly latches onto you and just seems fascinated on everything about you, they mirror your personality, your instant soulmates, they want to talk 24-7, that to me at the time was the most wonderful thing in the world. I thought I had finally just found the best thing ever. And a lot of my fears of rejection or inadequacy were so immediately quelled because this person took such a great interest in me so suddenly without really knowing who I was. And I think as we start to do recovery and healing work and we become more comfortable with ourselves, looking back, if anyone ever approached me like that in a relationship again, I would think they were nutso. Not like you know, I wouldn't run, <laughs> don't walk, run. Like that, but I would just be like, what in the world? Like, we're, I don't want to be soulmates with someone I just met a week ago. And I, I want my space and my boundaries and my, you know, not texting 24 seven, I want to be able to live my own life and have an independently happy life with someone else who is also independently happy with their life. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Jackson McKenzie of psychopathfree.com. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Welcome back. We're continuing the conversation with Jackson McKenzie, talking about healing our hearts, minds, and bodies from difficult experiences, difficult relationships. Let's return to the conversation. So Jackson, prior to the break, we were really talking about a lot about the book and about the cast of characters that we as human beings seem to connect ourselves up with that might not always be healthy. And rather than give attention to the narcissist and the sociopath, I want to turn and give attention on the brave souls who are seeking help from these terrible relationships. Yeah, that sounds great. So on your website, Psychopath Free, I did jump on over there and have a little look-see around. I was blown away by the quantity of traffic and the stories that people tell over there. Yeah, it's been a crazy journey with the website. I think it was maybe five or more years ago now that the website started. And it really just started as a couple of friends who got together. We were in a group together talking about this experience. And we thought, you know, there really needs to be more awareness about this. We wanted to give back to the community that had helped us so much. And so we started this website and and the forum really started out kind of a slow chug. And then all of a sudden it was like this exponential growth of people joining and sharing their stories. And it actually became really difficult to keep up with um, having, you know, a team of uh, usually anywhere from four to six people try to handle a thousand thousands of posts coming in every single day it was really, really challenging. But it, it made us realize there was just such a need for this and that there were so many people who um, were going through these challenges and really trying to get better. And uh, my guess, and I would love your feedback on this, is that it's age and gender agnostic. Absolutely. (laughs) It's interesting when you look at narcissists and sociopath recovery, I think you'll see more women tend to join those recovery communities. And when you look at borderline recovery, you'll see more men tend to join those relationship recovery groups. Interesting. And when we all know, we've all known, dated, or lived with one of these guys or gals. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I think, the reason that you see um, so many people coming on because everyone 
at some point seems to go through this or knows someone who has. Talk about your own journey. So this actually, the whole experience and my first book uh, came from uh, my actually first romantic relationship. And it was obviously from the title psychopath, so it didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it did. Maybe it went Spoiler really, alert. really well, actually, for you. Because <laughs> look at how you've grown. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's what's changed so much is that initially after it, I was really devastated and confused. And I was really messed up because when you have that voice inside of you telling you that you're wrong and doubting yourself and feeling all of those bad things about yourself, things feel pretty hopeless. And if someone had told me, you know, give it some time, you're going to end up being glad that the experience happened, I would have called them nuts. But that's what ended up happening. I look back now and I wouldn't change a thing um, because we learn about ourselves from those experiences. And we have these opportunities to make some really tremendous and exciting changes um, in our own lives. You spoke of founding Psychopath Free with a with a co-founder as a result of being connected through a support group, I think you said. And I want to touch upon the value of support, the value of telling the story to the healing. Yeah, I think sharing the story is just such an important part of recovery for people. That's really the first thing that you'll find when someone gets out of this relationship is that they just desperately need to share that story and get it out and tell people what happened, how it happened. They usually ask, am I crazy? Why did I get into this? And there's a lot of what I found was this uh, constant need for like validation, like, yes, that person was bad. You're good. It's okay. And what I think is really interesting is that every person I know who's been through one of these needs to go through that phase. But the strange part for me that I've started to see in many other people as well is that eventually a huge part of recovery comes from letting go of the story. So we rush into recovery with this. This is the story. This is the story. And someone who's totally traumatized could still tell you their story verbatim with the most like vivid details, but they still might not feel good. And those are the kind of lingering effects after abuse that we can see that lasts a long time and really take a different approach to heal from. Recently, I interviewed a woman who does work with sexual abuse recovery, and she's done it for many years. And Mm -hmm. she said for her, the turning point was when she could say, you know, I like to eat, I think she said, I like to eat uh, peanut butter ice cream anytime that I can get it. I was abused when I was a child. And I also like to garden, you know, that it just, <laughs> it just becomes like part of the, the tapestry, but not the identifier of who exactly. we are. It's not, it's not your identity. That's perfect. Yeah. And I, I think then, you know, that you've made strides in healing. Exactly. Yeah. It's just another chapter in, in your life. And when we talk about core wounds, which includes identifying and exploring different kinds of suffering and the discovery (laughs) of those sources that, you know, and I I think what I mean by that is that we will attract somebody in, in our life that is toxic for us. And the reasons why we are attracted to that person really stems back to some other primal place. Yeah. And those wounds, I really think, operate and dictate almost everything that we are doing. And it's subconscious. You're not walking around being like, my wound's telling me to do this. It's it's those feelings that we are not aware of that really, they may have been there since as long as we can remember. They may have come from a fresh, toxic relationship. I do think the scenario you're describing is more common that they have been there for a long time and that 
we continue encountering situations that reactivate them. And at first it can feel like, why me? This is unfair. But I think when we notice the patterns continue, eventually we make a switch where we think, oh, maybe this isn't a why me. Maybe this is an opportunity to look at this in a different way and to start to explore myself. And I think that's where everything starts to change. I like that you bring up the why me, you know, and the pity party angle of all of this, you know, like bad things happen to good people and occasionally good things happen to bad people. It's all kind of random and not personalized. But when we take it on as the pity party, you know, like, why does this happen to me? We place ourselves in this position of having given away our power. And I think we tend to encounter more of those situations where we are victimized. And I think betrayal is one of the hugest catalysts for that sensation. And when it comes to a cluster B relationship, you usually see uh, your partner run off with someone else who they've been with for a while and lied about and waving them in your face. It's it's almost like clockwork almost every single time. And because they're trying to get a reaction out of you to know that you still care and that you're pining over them. But the challenge is, is that the wounds that that leaves behind or, or reactivates are usually these really intense feelings of inadequacy. Like, I, I'm not enough. It's this really painful feeling of rejection where you might obsessively check their social media and try to prove to yourself that the new partner is worse than you and that they're crazy. But none of that changes that underlying wound of rejection or like, why wasn't I enough? And that's really where I think exploring that is so important. Otherwise, we do stay trapped in that poor me mentality, which is normal when you've been hurt. That's like a a default human reaction. And rising above that is saying that thing happened and it really had nothing to do with me. And I'm not going to define myself because someone else had challenges and didn't really know how to express them well. Well, exactly. And that sense of enoughness. I mean, I myself have found myself in love with a Mr. Narcissist before, and it mm-hmm. took me many years to kind of figure it out and where that comes from. And it goes back, you know, to a primal, unfulfilled need, right? That we exactly. have at some point in our life. And by the way, I need to just like give the warning. Our parents don't set out to screw us up, you know? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's a big phase a lot of people will go through. Is like, oh my God, I'm screwed up because of my parents. And I, I think that's another thing that needs to be let go. It's all those things that feel so personal. Yes, it's but, not personal. Fun, yeah, exactly. That's a hard pill to swallow. Like we want to personalize all of this stuff. How could we fall in love with that person? Why didn't so-and-so give me more of what I needed? You know, going back yeah. to basic needs of love and nurturing, but it isn't personal. Like we're all, we're all kind of like struggling to do our best and it, and our strange craziness manifests in different ways. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes that manifests in ways that just an- interacts and dances with other people who are manifesting in a certain way. And I think when we can take a step back and see that dance for what it is, it starts to become uh, way less personal. Which I think is an indicator that we're healing when we can, when we can kind of smile and laugh at it, you know, it wasn't fun and it really isn't funny, but you can kind of chuckle and see that that was them, not you and look where you are now. Then, um, then the betrayal gets healed because you're honoring yourself and you're being true to yourself. Exactly. And I think one of the coolest quotes about betrayal that I have ever heard is from an author named Stephen Walensky. He's a um, psychologist and philosopher. And he basically said when it comes to betrayal, the only betrayal after the event has ended is to ourselves because 
we are choosing, maybe not on purpose, but some part of us is carrying that story and that wound and, and accepting it as who we are. But like, if you look at me, for example, I'm sitting in my apartment right now and that person who I had that first relationship with is nowhere near me. And therefore there's no way that they can be causing me harm right now. And so I just thought that was a really fascinating perspective. I agree. And the betrayal of self is ultimately something that we can remedy. Like exactly. that's, that's in our control to do yeah. that. We get to, we get to do that any day of the week. We get to choose that. Yeah. That to me is, is very, very empowering and something that I think your visitors to psychopathfree.com probably find great support and comfort in the community that reiterates that message. I really hope so. They're a, a wonderful and really inspiring group of people. I just want to repeat something that you said to make people aware of how insidious this is, that you say you have over a thousand emails a day. There are four to six people handling these emails coming in every day of people around the world who find themselves in relationships with toxic people. Yeah. And, um, it actually, it got so busy and so many of us had kind of opened new chapters of our lives that we opted to, uh, close down the public section of the forum and, um, refer people to, there are just so many amazing resources and communities out there. Um, but we do still have an extremely active Facebook page, um, where other survivors interact with each other. And I think, uh, it's almost has half a million followers now. So it's just really unbelievable how prevalent the issue is. And I think as a young man, you being able to speak about this is very supportive to other, you know, younger adults who may not want to go to therapy, you know, may not be comfortable in that environment, but yet they need support. They need to talk. They need to find a way to manage their distress and betrayal. Oh, absolutely. It's so important to get out there and start uh, sharing and exploring ourselves and Therapy can help anyone. So Yeah, I think it, <laughs> therapy is a great thing. And then there, that gets to a point where it's no longer about the therapy. It's about the action to move into the next chapter. Exactly. The book we're talking about today is Whole Again, Healing Your Heart and Rediscovering Your True Self After Toxic Relationships and Emotional Abuse. My guest today has been Jackson McKenzie, who is the co-founder of psychopathfree.com. To learn more, please visit psychopathfree.com. On Facebook, you can find Jackson at psychopathfree and on Twitter, psychopathfree. Jackson, I wish you a lot of luck with this book and thanks for sharing yourself and a bit of your community with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Lisa. It's been great talking with you. Likewise. Here comes the break. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness this week. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Peter Levine and Jackson McKenzie, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. 
Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.